This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, welcome back to the podcast. This is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska. And today we're going to um, kind of do something a little different for you guys. But we thought it would be prudent to share this with you. Um, we are going to be talking about the probably greatest um, invasion, at least well, the largest, countries. the largest land and sea invasion, right? Right. Um, land to sea. Of, right, of uh, Normandy on commonly known as the D-Day invasion from June 6th, um, 1944. And what makes this one a, a special episode, right, Tom, is that we're going to kind of hear about it from the horse's mouth. We had yeah, the ability right. yeah. to... Primary source. <laughs> yes, to actually interview um, a D-Day veteran. So, you know, there's not many of those guys alive. And I actually had to fly solo that day because Tom was in a hospital how you doing, by the way? I'm all right. I'm uh, well. I'm I'm okay, uh, but we'll see what the uh, outcome is later on. But I'm okay. Non-COVID okay, okay. related. Non-COVID. Non-COVID related. related. Non-COVID related. <laughs> yeah, it's more like stress related. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Body's falling apart. Um, That's how we're gonna get old age. Old age. Old age. Yeah, old but age. Tom's fine. Tom's fine. But anyway, so I had to fly solo that day when I interviewed um, our guest, uh, Mr. Al Sipple, who is nearly 94 years old. But uh, but so literally when I was interviewing him, you were in the hospital. So it's kind of a you were there in spirit. You were there in spirit. Yeah, I'm but, in the hospital for something like you know whatever. And then this this guy fought in D Day. Like it's just like oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was and it was funny because he was telling me too. He's like you know I like to do my own things. So uh, you know the other day a tree fell in my yard, so I cleaned it up. And you know, I'm on my own lawn. And I'm like, well, that, that that's people of that generation. I mean, that's people of you know what they call that great the greatest generation. Yeah. That, they were like kids during the Great Depression, or you know, and then they yeah. go and fight World War Two. They come back and the they're like the parent, they're the parents of the baby boomers, you know. So um, yeah. you know, that they're uh, that's why they have that moniker, that that nickname. And um, yeah, I mean, my grandfather was one too. We'll get into this, I'm sure, at some point. My grandfather was in World War Two. I remember hearing the stories. Kind of what gave me my uh, passion for history. And um, yeah, the fact that some of these pe people are still alive today that like, fought in this battle, and he fought in the battle. Like if all the kids that are listening to this podcast, or the younger students that are listening to this podcast, they play those like Call of Duty games and whatnot, and they a lot of times they start with like like a D Day, especially the World War II version. They start with, like a D Day type invasion, or they're watching Saving Private Ryan. It was just on the other day on TNT, Saving Private Ryan, and it's it's the same thing. Like this guy was actually there, so he's telling his first. You can't get any more firsthand than this so he, he's yeah. describing it and he, he's you know you said he's 94 but um he's sharp he knows what he, he, he remembers things and i guess that that has to be the case like if you live through something like this it's going to seem like it's yesterday because how can yeah. it not how can it not yeah you know and and you know mr sipple did tell me you know during the interview he said i wouldn't want to do this again ever but I, i'm glad i was there to do it there was a total of 16 million American veterans that fought in World War II, right? 16 million or so American soldiers in World War II. And uh, there's about, you know, 300,000 of them left today uh, from the 16 million. That high. Yeah. So I remember years and, ago, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Peter, but I no, remember no. years ago when um, Saving Private Ryan came out, 
they started doing something similar to this when um, Schindler's List came out. And then Steven Spielberg was interviewing all the Holocaust survivors just to have their, their stories on tape. And he was like donating it to like the National Archives. And then after Save It Private Ryan, um, Tom Hanks got involved in that too. When he started interviewing all of these survivors um, that were at that point in like, I guess their 70s mid eighties, a lot of them. Yeah. And he was in yeah, mostly their nineties and hundreds. Yeah, getting now. all their, getting all their stories. Yeah. But now it's even, now it's even older. I believe what last year, no, the year before. So 2019, 2018 was the last year the Pearl Harbor survivors met because there just isn't any enough left anymore to meet. Yeah. And actually they we'll said for D-Day that. survivors. Yeah. And then for D-Day survivors, um, the la- last year was the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And there was only 30, American uh, D-Day veterans to show up at that. In Normandy, know, yeah, we have the in uh, Normandy, which is the lowest it's ever been. And when I spoke to Mister Simple about it, uh, he did mention to me that you know he goes, he's like, I just couldn't travel. He goes, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there, and I just I didn't feel healthy enough to travel. So obviously, only thirty showed up. I'm sure there's a lot more out there, but yeah. Um, statistics according to National World War II Museum, which I've actually been to uh, New Orleans, it's an awesome place. Uh, Mister Simple was very excited because he's like, my name is in there. But anyway, according to the National World War II Museum, 294 um, World War II veterans will die each day or have died each day in 2020. And there is now a a little caveat to this, an asterisk that says this does not account for COVID-related deaths. So 300 die each day of of veterans that fought in this war. Yeah, I mean, they're up in age, unfortunately. That's what happens. And it's a part of history that... I guess it's more, you and I are at a certain age. We grew up, our, at least myself or people in our generation more so, that our grandparents fought in World War II. Like you had that, you know? Yeah, yeah. You had that sort of thing. And um, they, I guess our parents, or uh, my father was in Vietnam, but yeah. which I'm, which is something we have to talk about one day, Peter Pierce. We, we should do a podcast. He's, no, no, he's telling me more and more about it. Like all the time. Six minutes. Take like six the, minutes, Tom. And like these letters are keeps on coming in. And I'm like, Dad, why do you have like combat? He's like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, what, what, what is going on here? Like yeah. he used to always, he used to always tell us that he had nothing to do with it. And now it's like more and more that he had a quite a bit to do with that, but I don't want to get into that now. It's just like crazy. But I think you should probably interview your dad. That's what my guess. Yeah. 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 I know. But like this stuff comes to, it comes to my parents' house once in a while. I'm just, you know, my mom's like, Oh, you got some mail, some randomly. And I'm going through. I'm like, why does it say you were like, a, you're a combat veteran. He's like, uh, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> You, you said you just wrote checks. What's going on? You know, so I don't, I don't know. But, but I mean, yeah. that's a word a lot of people don't want to talk about. And yeah, even, yeah, just, even here, about. you'll like you, you guys will hear in a interview. Um, Mr. Sipple is saying that he never really talked about it until no, he went don't. to a doctor's office, and he like picked up a newspaper, and the newspaper said that um, you know a lot of the younger generation doesn't really know what D Day is, and they don't really know much about World War II. And he was like, you know what, heck with this, like I'm, I'm going to share my story, and. And that's kind of what prompted him to share the story. And he actually initially shared his story with me uh, when I was working on a World War II book that I have coming out next year. And that's why I kind of... Good plug, good plug, Peter. Well, it is. (laughs) Um, But anyway, but for that reason, I kind of, uh, you know, I I knew him from that. So I asked him if it would be okay to interview him for a podcast. And he said, sure. And well, so he's like, yeah, I'll stop by. So I met him at a local museum in my hometown and uh you know this was this past weekend so again just so we're on the same page the the audio i tried to clean up as much as i could but because of covid i made sure we stayed in an open space um 
it was kind of like you know doors were open uh he's wearing a mask so you know we're apart the audio is what it is but you, you can you can hear everything you can totally hear him yeah you can totally you hear everything. You, just, get, you can definitely get the gif that you know of what he's talking about you can you absolutely. can get his passion for what he's talking about you can really understand how still like he remembers this even though it was set over 75 years ago as if it was yesterday as if this is yep. him talking a couple of days after d-day describing what he experienced yep so let's uh you know before we kind of share um our interview which tom unfortunately was in the hospital for um okay i'll bring that up huh well i just feel bad for you man all right <laughs> Let's let's talk about D-Day itself, right? Let's, uh, you know, right. Mr. Sipple kind of starts off his story, uh, you know, when he heard about Pearl Harbor and he's 16 and he's like, that's it. I'm, you know, quit school enlisting, which is very common, right? Yeah, very At the common. Time. Um, and then as soon as he turns 17, he gets activated and, well, you hear his story, but he winds up um, on D-Day, Omaha Beach, first wave on June 6th. I mean, he is, he's the guy actually in a Higgins boat, what you see in the movies all the time, um, you know, where the ramp opens up and all the soldiers come out and there's machine guns just shooting at them, German machine guns. He was on that Higgins boat. Um, he was the operator of that. Um, yes. Yeah, so I mean, for, again, for those what younger. You ramp, draw, the ramp. The ramp. Yeah. 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 So imagine if these, you know, these younger people who are listening to this podcast, you're 17, 18 years old. This is how old he was. And you're charging towards a beach being held by Nazis. And you know about the Nazis, you know, the, the Germans, Hitler, this is the Atlantic Wall. This is Fortress Europe. You're heading towards it over choppy seas. And you, you're seeing planes fly by. You're hearing explosions right and left. You're seeing other ones of these boats getting destroyed. The machine gun fire is bouncing off of the front of your boat. And then they're saying, all right, lower lower the ramp and then run run towards where those machine guns are shooting at you yeah. go and that's what they're doing and they they use you do it they do it because they this was something that and it's hard i know this might sound it's not corny but i guess it sounds corny when you come in like these guys are heroes and yet they refuse and they don't call themselves heroes you know what i mean like you always have that you always have that saying there and um but it definitely is that's what they are i mean you talk about movies, you talk about the video games. This is the, the history's greatest conflict. This is the biggest battle, right? In history's yeah. greatest conflict. Everything that was going into the planning of D Day, that's, you know, again, future podcasts, right? Just the planning itself of D Day. Yeah. Because, yeah, it happened June 6th, but yeah, I know you know Pete and a lot of other people. They, it was supposed to happen June 5th. It happened, mm-hmm. it, it rained too much. So they had to like delay it. And they didn't know how much longer they could delay it because all this espionage and trying to make the, the Germans think it was going to be someplace else, mm-hmm. not, not at Normandy. Um, so they wouldn't like release those, you know, have as much defenses there as yep. they didn't know. No one knew. Remember, Eisenhower writes two letters, one that how it was a success and one was his resignation letter, um, resignation letter saying that, you know, it, he accepts blame for the failed invasion. Yep. Yeah. He wrote two letters before the actual invasion. Yeah. Like he was ready. It was 50, 50 for him. I mean, he's bringing an entire armada into mainland Europe to open up a new front. Yeah, you know, to finally bring the war to the Germans. I mean, obviously, we're already invading um, through Italy, North Africa, and Italy, yeah, and yeah, North Africa, that. and that's yeah. kind of stalled a lot. But this was going to be like going right at the heart of Germany through France, yeah. and uh, you know, mainland Europe. Like yeah, yeah. He, this guy was, you know, I, Ike basically said, "Hey, this is fifty fifty. I'm going to write these two speeches." Well, it's, it's never I'll, been done I'll before. You know it, it was never done yeah. before. Yep. 
so they crossed the English Channel, right? Uh, eventually, from you know, Mr. Sipple is going to talk about that, but you know, the night from June fifth to June sixth, nineteen forty-four, and as Tom mentioned, it was supposed to be June fifth, but they delayed it. And shortly after midnight, actually, the um, two American divisions, the eighty-second and hundred first Airborne Division, were dropped and parachuted in behind enemy yeah. lines to cut, cut to cords, cut take take yeah. bridges, just get the Anything invasion. To get, stall. Yeah, yeah, some of the groundwork put together. Yeah, an idea was to stall any German reinforcements. So once the surprise came and they arrived at Normandy Beach, if these guys did their job, these paratroopers, and cut the lines, then there would be no way to communicate and get more reinforcements from the Germans to come into the beach. So uh, after that, it's pretty much history. I mean, once they get on the beach, the Allies just uh, advanced through France and, you know... The heavy fighting, heavy casualties, but... They just keep on coming. That's basically what they just they just keep on coming. They progress up the beachhead and then they establish it. And once it's established, that's it. They're not losing it. There's no way that they're going to be driven back into the English Channel after that. Yeah. Because of the bravery of like Mr. Stipple, like what we're going to yeah. be hearing soon. Yeah. Yep. We should also mention the fact that this wasn't like a oh one landing and done. This was yeah. just like seven days. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Yeah. to try to secure this beach. And, and it wasn't just one beach. You had Omaha, no. Utah, Juno, Sword, Gold. Those were all the right. beaches that the Americans, British, um, and Australians and Canadians were all um, invading. Yep. One thing that Mr. Stipple did not mention in this interview, but he mentioned me before, is that uh, if you see any pictures from Omaha Beach from the first wave, he goes, you can't believe that those are pictures from the first wave. And, and I said, why, Mr. Stipple? And he goes, because they were all dead. And then he just went really quiet. And I was like, oh. Um. Those first guys, you know, as soon as that ramp opened, yeah, they had no shot. Crazy. Um, well, I guess without further ado, um, here's the interview for our podcast with uh, a D-Day veteran, Mr. Sipple. Right, man. Through school. school, yeah, 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 yeah. And then from there, you did you wind up going to any of that, or did you go straight into the service? From there, I went. Uh, Richie Ziegler and I quit school. Richie Ziegler went to Cedar Lake. Mm-hmm. And uh, we quit school, and we uh, he, he found out about a, a a project that the government was running where they paid you to go to school. Mm-hmm. So we went to a machinist school up in Phillipsburg, the wow. two of us. And uh, when I graduated there, I got a job as taping machines in Rockaway. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks before I was 17, I went down and listed in the Navy. Wow. And then I... Uh, after I turned 17, they activated me. Yeah. I only had five weeks of boot camp up in Sampson, New York, up on Seneca Lake, on the north end of Seneca Lake, up by Geneva, New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually boot camp, Navy boot camp, was 10 to 12 weeks, but they pushed yeah, us the through yeah. five weeks, and they they uh, gave us a 15, two-week, two, 14-day leave. We went back. We went back up and they gave us an aptitude test. <laughs> and uh, the guy called me in. He said, well, what do you want to do? He said, you got high marks in your aptitude test. I said, what do you want What do you want to do in the Navy? I said, well, I was working as a machinist. I wouldn't go like a machinist for that. So he said, well, we're looking for aerial gunners. And he said, with the marks you've got, I can guarantee if you want whatever wanted to go to Arizona School that uh, with the marsh you got I you would go there. So I was alright, put me down for that. So we went back 
We went back to the barracks and about two days later an officer came in. He says, everybody, everybody, pack up your gear, be down in front of the barracks in an hour. The truck's going to pick you up and take you to the station. So we went down there in the snow and we stood and they came to Gladys and took us to the station to, uh, to New York and uh, marched us up to Pier 92. That was all after his aptitude. I don't know what aptitude means, but uh, anyhow. <laughs> yeah, have a seat, by the way. A lot of baloney. A lot of baloney. And uh, anyhow, we uh, we marched up to Pier 92, and the Queen Mary was tied up to Pier 90. And uh, uh, we slept on the springs of Pier 92 that night. This is don't don't unlash your gear because you're going to be moving out early in the morning. Yeah, don't move in for too long. So in the morning they herded us over in a parking lot there and they gave us a steel helmet, a gas mask, and a, the uh, Salvation Army gave us a, 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 a here first aid kit and uh, then they. Boarding us, they started boarding us on the Queen Mary. She was paired up, tied up to Pier 90. And I, I was a skinny kid. I was in my sea bag and everything. Your sea bag and your mat, your your hammock and everything all lashed together. It was heavy. And I had it on my shoulder and I was struggling with the damn thing. And this old guy, boy, here, he was behind the barricade here. People, civilians watching us load up. And he come running over here, kid, let me help you. Uh, he wanted to get in my place. He wanted to take my place in the line. Oh, wow. And, and, go, and the CBs had it, or the, the shore patrol had to come get him, take him out oh, of there. But wow. well, we, uh, we uh, got on the Queen Mary for six and a half days uh, to go to Rosenade, Scotland. We went through Northland. Big, big storm. The waves are coming over top of that oh, Queen Mary boy. B-47 Thunderbolts lashed on the main deck in front of the wheelhouse. And uh, we got there. We, uh, there were five LSTs up there. And they were, uh, they had been in North Africa, Sicily and uh, uh, Salerno, Italy. And they, then they sent them back up there to, to uh, Rosneath to be re-outfitted with any aircraft guns. They had a big three-inch fifty on the Fantail. They took that off and they put a bunch of forties and twenties extra on there. That's what we went over for. Yeah. Boot camp. I shot three shots out of a twenty-two rifle. That's <laughs> as much uh, gunnery as I learned in boot oh, camp. Wow. So anyhow, they uh, that's what we were put on there for. So we we went. From there we went to Belfast, Ireland, picked up a half-track outfit, we took them over to Swansea Wells and dumped them out there. And we went down through the Irish Sea, around land, then back up the channel to Port Weymouth. That was where we, we were stationed. Our, our base was, and that was everything important. Weymouth went to Omaha Beach. And we, we, uh, we'd go out on maneuvers and they'd put up balloons and they'd, that's how we learned to teach. They taught us how to operate those anti-aircraft guns out like, yeah. job training like that. Right. And uh, we stayed there till the invasion. That's where we left from for the invasion. We had, uh, I got, uh, we, uh, 
had an air raid there about five, six days before the invasion, Germans over, dropped bombs, and they, they set bombers over high, and they dropped bombs. One landed so close to our boat, it pushed it sideways in the water, and uh, I was, our general quarters horn was going off, and I threw my legs out of the rack to, to get out. About the time the bomb hit, boy, it threw me to get the bulkhead on the other side, and I, I just grabbed my dungarees and my helmet, and up the ladder I went with bare feet on this, those pipes that wow. sucker hurts, you know, but I yeah. didn't even feel it. And uh, got up there on my on my gun, and uh, uh, History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. They, uh, uh, 20 millimeter has a three-man crew. They got, they got the, the gunner, they got a Running operator to crack it up and down, and they got a loader, and uh, so anyhow we uh, you got there's a cable that's fastened to the bottom that goes over a pulley and it gets, goes on the bolt and you jack up on it to pull a bolt open so the loader can put the magazine on there. And anyhow, in the, in the excitement and everything, that's scared. And uh, I, I didn't put the cable over the pulley; I put it over the trigger. And you got a lot of strength when you're scared. Yeah. I busted the trigger off the gun. So oh, man. This bomber came in low. Turned yeah. engine hinkle. I could see the pilot, the co pilot, and bomber here, and I could have shot him, but uh, I couldn't shoot the gun. Yeah. So uh, they, we saw him drop stuff. We, we hit the deck. Wow. And we thought they dropped bomb and no explosion. So we thought we were lucky they dropped us. Yeah. No bombs. And what they did was drop mines. And the next week, our Liberty boat was coming back from the beach when the raid started. And they uh, uh, we, they had two LCT guys on there. LCTs didn't have a small boat to take them in. And the LST, they used to pick them up and take them. Yeah. So we, uh, uh, we had a work detail. And we had to go to the Ancon to get supplies. And, we were tied on the same boy RLST and Jack Schofield from Denville. He was on the 347. He had to be on the other one tied to the same buoy. And uh, they dropped the mines on the fourth side of his his LST. And we 
went around, we were going to deliver those two guys to their LCC and then go get our supplies. And we went around the fan tail of two LCCs. Come up on the port side there, and we hit one of those mines. The boat was digging for blew it to pieces. And uh, they, they had a lot of activity in the harbor. The boats running all over the place. So boat right there, right away, quick the fishes out of the water. They, uh, they, uh, coxswain and the boat machinist and the ramp operator, they got the purple heart. I, 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 got, I got a bottle of liniment to grow on my sore spots. Oh, man. And I was only 17 year old kid, so I really shouldn't have been there. But anyhow, yeah, uh, oh, we had to get a, that's how I got in the small boat program. That's how I got on Omaha Beach. On the Higgins, yeah. And uh, because he had to get another Higgins boat from the from the, uh, the harbor master, and we all our LSTs had all our Higgins boats had LST three seventy three painted on them, but they uh, this one we had had a big diamond on it. Yeah, so we had one odd boat, and uh, so they needed a crew, so they wanted volunteers. So I volunteered for it. So I got as a ramp operator on a, on a Higgins boat. So when we uh, when we left uh, Portland, Weymouth, we got about halfway across that big storm came and they sent a patrol boat out to chase us back. So they wouldn't let us in the harbor because of, they had rough waters. They had right? submarine screens yeah. and they uh, was afraid a sub would sneak in under one of those landing craft and get in the harbor. So they uh, anchored us out in the bay. So we had left one landing, uh, 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 Corvette there to guard us against submarine attack. So we got a notice from the beach that the, that the, they had mail for the men we had on there. They hadn't gotten their mail in a long time. So yeah. it was rough, boy, I'm telling you. Oh, man. And the captain said, "Any, he says, too dangerous to win there. He says, any, any volunteers? So I volunteered, and a couple other guys volunteered. So we, we, we went in, uh, and we got the opening in the, in the, in the harbor where the submarine net was. They had a machine gun nest on each end of that. And we had to take a, uh, Radio men with us with the, with the code book, and he had to have. Uh, they, when they realized there was something out there, they put the light on you, and they, and they send you a message by code, and you got to give them the right answer. They chop you up with the machine, and they didn't mess around with the limeys. And uh, so we had the right code anyhow. They let us in, and we got the mail, and we brought it back out, and we. Uh, the, 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 oh, well, it's 15, 20 feet from the water to the main deck on the LSC and smooth weather. But we we were in that boat, they were throwing down heaving lines and we were tying on the mail bags. And one minute you were 20 feet down, next minute you were up at level with the deck. Have you ever got your arm caught in a doggone heaving line and ripped your arm off when it went down, you know? But uh, anyhow, we. We got that over. Next next day we left for over to France. And we uh, 
He anchored us about eight miles out, outside the 88 fire. And uh, we unloaded all our heavy equipment on rhino boards, tanks. We, the LSD carried about 19 German tanks. Then they have an elevator in front with the main deck to carry several half tracks up there to go. Patrol cars and the jeeps and jeeps and yeah. ambulances and stuff, small artillery, and anyhow we uh, we uh, unloaded all that stuff. Jack Schofield, he would they, when they were unloading, it was rough, big waves coming and everything else. And they so this is the eve before D Day, right? Well, this is the this morning. Is D Day, morning off. Well, during the night. Yeah, between the fifth and the sixth. Yeah. yeah, and we. Uh, he, they, they, they were unloading on a rhino barge and they didn't have it lined up too well. They had steel cables hooking them together. And a big wave came and the rhino barge zigged and the LSD zagged and the cables busted. And there was a tank right on the edge of the corner of the, of the rhino barge and there was another tank coming down the ramp and he slid into the other tank and all the way, way pushed that corner down. Both tanks went right straight to the bottom. Five men need tank now. That's a very uh, hopeless feeling or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can't even imagine. Yeah. But anyhow, we I don't think Jack got into the beach at anyhow they, they we gotta get another boat from the barber master and I got in that group. And I, that's how I got on. And we were going in, he dropped us about eight miles out. About a three hour ride going in there. on the Higgins boat, three hours. They got no wow. seats in them, and uh, it, waves were coming over the top, and they and guys were soaking wet. They were all seasick, and oh, we're bailing salt water and puke and everything with our helmets to keep the damn boat from sinking. It was, oh, it was taking on water, and then we come across these five guys swimming in the water they had. Their biggest boat hit a mine, blew up, and there was five left. And we pulled, towed them on board, and he said, Coxon said, No more, we're going to sink anyhow. Anymore, we had too much. We're overloaded now. He says, You can't take so we had to leave a few guys there. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> straighten your mind out. You got to think that some other boat came along and we got them. And that bothered me. Yeah. Anyhow, we finally got into the beach and uh, there was a little wreckage on the beach. Everything we got in there, got wrecked just about. And uh, we finally found a place to land. And we uh, put our guys ashore. A couple of them got knocked out of machine gun bullets. And, uh, a couple of one of the little taken bullets a little ways up the beach. Dropped the ramp right in front of a machine gun nest. Killed every single guy in the boat. 30, 38 guys, I think. Nobody ever even got out. And you're 17 years old when this was happening. Yeah. Amazing. And then further up the beach, the same thing happened to another Higgins boat. But when they got digging through the heap of dead bodies in the afternoon, they found a live guy down there yet. He was shot four times. He was still alive. And they took him out to a hospital ship and he lived. And they, uh, I read in the paper a few years ago that he, he was a farmer from West Virginia. Hmm. There was 12 
from little town West Virginia, there were 12 kids. All killed there about 15 minutes on Homewood Beach from that same town hall. And he was, uh, this guy, was he died from that was two years ago. He was the only one out of that whole, God bless. the whole town because they, they, they all joined the National Guard because they got a pair of shoes and a pair of pants and some clothes to wear because they were just poor farmers. And they, uh, uh, so they were all in, in this, when they had, they, the war started, they activated them. And they were all squirrel hunters, so they were all going to rifle shots. So they put them all in the infantry with a rifle. And uh, that's uh, how they all got together in a bunch, wow. and they all got killed. So you were in charge of the rank on the Higgins boat. Where was the actual, within the boat, I'm trying to visualize it, where was the you mechanism? Know, if you're facing towards Out. the beach, it would be on the right side, okay. the, the trank. Yeah, so I mean, you know, you were very lucky as well that you were, you know, shot in once the ramp opened. Well, when we, when we got unloaded finally, and the, the hot coxswain says, crank up that ramp, we're getting the hell out of here, so. I looked at the motor machines, he looked at me and what about them two guys that got shot there? They're out they're not dead, they're out there propped up on a couple of dead bodies, keeping them drowning. And uh, he said he can crank up that goddamn ramp we're getting out of here. I said, Well <laughs> we can't hear you, it's too much noise. So <laughs> we jumped in the water and we ran swimming and waited in and he got one by the collar and I got the other we Amazing. We towed them back and shoved them up on the ramp, and we climbed up there and we pulled them in, and then, then we cranked up the goddamn ramp. <laughs> got the that is amazing. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, we took—I don't know where they lived or died. We took them onto an ambulance, uh, And then it took you forever to get out of there. I assume we were one of the few boats that did get out of there. Yeah. One piece, most of nobody ever got out of there at that time in the day. That yeah. morning. That morning. And we laid out, and the LST-6 was the only LST that landed on Omaha Beach that day. That Bob Wilkins from Indian Lake was on there. He was what, same age as us. And uh, they took in a hospital unit. And, uh, Dr. Bertha was a young surgeon in that hospital unit. Dr. Bertha from Wharton. <laughs> and... Uh, they got it around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and we had to back them up, and boy, there were still a couple of more, more uh, battalions up there that they hadn't knocked out yet, and they they were dropping mortars all around on LSD-6. They were going off like, like popcorn, and never hit them with a single one. They had a lot of shrapnel, but they never hit them with a shell. Amazing. They got in there and they got the tent set up and they got the hospital unit set up up on the hill there about six o'clock at night. And we would lay out and wait for orders from the heavy cruiser Augusta. She was the flagship for all the amphibious. Admiral Stark was on her. Admiral Stark, he was the commendation for the invasion for, for what we did. And uh, anyhow, we uh, so, so, saw no German planes all day. The sky was full of planes. They were all Allied planes. But then, right about dusk, when you could just about see when the engine able to go cruising out over them, nobody fired a shot at him. He went cruising back in again. He was looking for a target. He was looking for Texas. was on our starboard side, shelling point to box. And he 
was to get to Hayward, Texas was giving him a lot of trouble, so they were, that was what he was looking for. So he went back in over to the beach and a little while later out he came again. And he came right over in front of us and we noticed the marking on the side and we opened up on him and put him on fire and the uh, uh, side door opened up and this guy dove out of her head first. He was on fire from his head to his toes. Uh, we must have hit some fuel tanks in that thing and, and he got sprayed. He was falling fire. So he no sooner cleared and the plane exploded right over top of us. The rest of the bodies in the plane and all the junk and everything came down on us and around us. And the next morning we, we had to clean up that mess and uh, there was a rhino barge tied on along our port side here. My gun was right there about 10 feet away and the wedge between the rhino barge and the side of our ship was a tire from that plane. And I, uh, I came within 10 feet of getting killed by a tire. Wow. <laughs> but uh, we, we jacked it out of there, got it out of there. We took it to the carpenter shop, cut the tire off it, and took the rim and cut the rim up all in little pieces of aluminum. Yeah. So everybody got a little piece of that. A little plane. memento. But I, I lost mine. I don't have any. I should have put it on a chain, put it around my neck. Yeah. Mine. Well, you yeah. still have the memory of it, so it's still it's still there. You know, you, you may not have the physical thing, but these are things uh, you cannot forget. Nobody has an inkling of what that was like. It was terrible. Uh, you wonder if there's a Lord up there. Why the hell he let something like that go on? Yeah. You know, but that was what uh, thing. Eighty-eight shell. Big shell. That's one of the finest pieces of artillery that was any country had. And the LCI up the beach commander, they unload a ramp on each side of the nose here. You're one circle line boats over in New York. They were converted to LCIs. And the, the men walked down them ramp, the soldiers. And this one, a German gunner, he had a bullseye. He, made a bullseye rifle, and this ramp is full of men. Uh, turn a human body into stew meat. Uh, but that's, uh, I wouldn't give a million bucks if I had a soldier. sold a ticket to one that trip, I'm glad I made it. I wouldn't want to do it again, but I'm glad I made it. You know what happened there? It's interesting, when, last time we spoke, you told me a story afterwards, how you wind up getting sick before you came home. That sounded pretty scary. Oh, well, I... <laughs> Didn't you say you couldn't feel your legs? It was like... You when got... we came back to this country, we, they gave us a month's leave. Mm -hmm. we, we took that LST when they were, we made about 19 trips across the channel, one trip up the Seine River to Rouen, France, with a tank outfit, and then the LST-6 hit a mine and sank on the, on, on the way back. And uh, Bob Wilkins was on that list, he said. And uh, uh, then they were finished with us. They sent us back up to Rosny, Scotland, and they re, re I got the picture home where he recommissioned re, re that into the British Navy, gave it to the Limeys. 
and uh, then they put us on a in a truck and trucked us down to Glasgow, Scotland, put us on a train for Liverpool, England, and we got on a USS Mount Vernon, was the old SS Cannon, mm -hmm. troop ships carrying a lot of, a lot of wounded and veterans, and uh, we spent Christmas Eve, 44, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Best food I ever ate in my life, man. We had turkey, chicken, candy, cigars, ice cream, anything you wanted. Potatoes and gravy, boy, I'm telling you, really, really fast. Must have been good. You still remember it all these years. <laughs> well, we got into New York and uh, uh, they turned the PA system on. We could see cars going along the road. Over there, everything was blacked out. Mm -hmm. they, the cars had the top of the lights blacked out, I think, but you still. Yes. Anyhow, that was something to see. See that, and they turned the PA system on, and they were playing rum and Coca Cola and one meatball. <laughs> they were the dance craze of the, yeah. in this country at that time. Over in England, there was the Hokey Pokey and the Lambeth Walk <laughs> in London at that time. That was the dance craze over there. But anyhow, we got a month's leave, and then we had a report back to Norfolk, Virginia. The only, about 134 guys on that LSD. I only saw, I ever saw one guy from that LSD, it was Jim, Jim Sickles, James Flannery Sickles. He hated his name Flannery. I, <laughs> I called him Flannery. <laughs> and uh, they sent us to Fort Pierce, Florida for small boat training again. So we got down there, I said, Jim, I said, we, I got blew up on them. I don't want to go far we got them small boats. So they had a, we went in the mess hall and they had a, advertisement on a bulletin board there. They were looking for volunteers for extra hazardous and prolonged duty outside of Continental limits. So I said, let's go down tomorrow to the office and see what that's all about. So we did it. They, they were looking for, for volunteers for amphibious scouts and raiders and underwater demolition. So we decided we'd go on amphibious scouts. That was a little more complicated. And uh, so we took the test. I passed and he failed. So they took him in the underwater demolition, he took me in the amphibious scouts. So I trained with them down there, and I'm telling you, that was stiff training. When you got finished with that three months before, you were in good shape. Well, that was preparing you for Pacific, essentially, right? Hey, oh, yeah. that's, that's where we were going. Well, we were, originally, uh, they were scuttled, but they were gonna, we were gonna go to India, and then go to China Burma Theater with the Merrill Marauders or whatever the hell they were out there. But they changed their mind, they sent us to the Philippines instead for advanced training for education in Japan. But we, uh, Harry Truman, my favorite president, dropped the bomb and saved my hide and a lot of other ones. And then when they got points enough to come home, they put us on an attack transport and sent us back to New York, back to to uh, uh, Washington. Anyhow, on the way back, I I got feeling sick and I couldn't get out of my sack. I couldn't move my legs, and uh, I uh, I tried to get. I wanted to get. I wanted to get to the sick bay. I, I 
trying to get up this ladder. I couldn't pick my foot up that high off the floor. And all these the white guys are going to chow, and they're pushing on. Get the hell out of the way. We're going to eat. You know, you're blocking the traffic. And wow. I couldn't help myself. And finally, this young colored man came along. He says, boy, you don't look too good. I said, boy, I don't feel too good. He said, where are you trying to go? I says, I'm trying to go to sick bay. He says, I'll get you there. So he, he got me up that ladder, and he got me in the sick bay. And uh, they had to take me we got to Seattle Washington, and they had to take me off in the stretcher, and I couldn't walk. And they put me in the Seattle Washington Naval Hospital, and they did some tests. They did some spinal taps and a few things on me there. They... Uh, then they sent me to St. Albans in New York. They sent a Jewish boy as a medic with me to take care of me on another trip. Steam engine or anything was yeah. on the trains. And uh, his father owned a big trucking company in New York. They were, had money. And he was a nice boy. And uh, we got to Chicago. He called his mother in New York and uh, he got off the train and he gave gave her my my mother's phone number and address and everything so she she got in touch with my mother and my sister Millie and and uh, they they told them where to drive to New York and park and they did a chauffeur limousine picked them up. And when we got to New York, same thing at the station a chauffeur limousine picked us up and took they had a penthouse called me and uh, we had dinner there served and everything else. It wasn't, wow. We visited and everything and when that was all over, why they took my mother and sister back to the car with the limousine. They took Tim and I out to St. Albans in the limousine. We went wow. all the way out there in the limousine. And we deserved it, that's for sure. But I spent five and a half months in there. And I, so what did they say it was? Gillian Barry syndrome. I got it from a mosquito bite. Wow. I got bit with a lot of mosquitoes out there. Mosquito bite wow. that, I, that made half a man out of me that I used to be. I was yeah, you can't water, water man. Imagine all the kids couldn't wait to get out of school to get in the service those days. They wanted to help their country. Different times, but I think they have a different attitude today. Terrible thing to say. Terrible thing for somebody to see because you got to think about the rest, the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, the sheer fact that you were 17 years old and witnessing all that is, you know, it puts everything well, in perspective. I was a dumb kid. I didn't know what I was getting into. You know? <laughs> that's, what, that's really oh, what they man. wanted, I think. Dumb kids. And now, you know, all these years later, and here you're sitting through a uh, world pandemic. <laughs> you know, who would have yeah, thought, uh, thought, right? Uh, you lived yeah. through a lot in your life. Yeah. What are your thoughts about this pandemic? I don't know. I uh, Sometimes I think it's a political thing. Uh, you can't take a chance. You know? yeah. Well, you are now 90. How old are you? Now? Well, I'll be 94 in three months. God bless you. Yeah, I'm going to and make you're, And you drive. You're, you're, you're in better shape than I am, and I'm 38. Well, I'm not, <laughs> you, you don't see the handful of pills I take every day either. I got that all out myself and 
And I fix the wall up, the stone wall out there, and I cut my grass. I do everything myself, but I gotta do a little. Some days I just get lazy and look at it and say, "The hell with it, fire." <laughs> but uh, I keep the place looking pretty good. And you have to keep busy, right? I think you told me that once. That it's important to never stop. Just, just be busy. Yeah. Well, I hope you guys enjoy that. It was definitely different for this podcast, but I think it really kind of opens our eyes a lot into just to kind of know that, you know, Mr. Sipple drove himself to this interview and, you know, I waved to him as he drove away. And sometimes you see the elderly guys just kind of walking around, you know, in the bank line or driving and, you know, you don't understand or don't think about the stories that these, these, you know, older yeah. guys carry with them. They're the ultimate primary source. I mean, they, yeah, and they're, they're still the stories there. they have is what you're reading in your history books. Exactly. And they're still there. And uh, for that, I just, you know, I think we just want to say that if you, you know, if you guys know a veteran or see a veteran, you should definitely thank them for, you know, for their service. And uh, always challenge your assumptions, you know, never judge a book by its cover. So next time there's a uh, person driving in front of you that looks like they're 90 and they're driving really slow, you know what? Let them drive slow. Yeah, let them drive. Because, right. you know, when they were your age, they have a... They were doing some things very similar to what you were doing, but they were also doing, they could have been saving the world. So you know exactly. what? Like, literally. No, yeah, literally. They're saving the world from Nazis, okay? Let it go. <laughs> Let it go. Let him drive slow. Like nuts. So thank you so much to Mr. Al Sippel. Tom, you wanted to make one little announcement before we go for this week? Um, I just want to say that if um, we do have a, to announce our Twitter page, the History Teacher Talking Twitter page, um, it's at, history underscore talk underscore ab so um go there we'll be advertising our next podcast we'll eventually do polls possibly we're talking about to see what topics you guys want us to talk about and then uh, just follow us yeah yeah spread the word guys spread the word if you enjoy listening to us do spread the word so uh i guess that's it for our podcast this week um thank you so much for listening and uh we'll see you guys next week take it easy I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.